I hope that every hunter gets a chance to kill one. Uh, just because like the, the playful kid part of me tells me that I've never walked a guy up, guy or gal to their first elk and had them look at me and be like, it's smaller than I thought it was. Mm. They're just big. They're huge. You know what I mean? And if you've never had that opportunity, um, and it sounds so, so like simplistic or whatever. Um, but that's, it's relevant. Yeah. You know, they're just the, the one big, you know, big majestic game animal we have here. Yeah. I've, I've guided, you know, a lot of elk at this point, over a hundred thousand pounds of elk I've had in my hands. And especially the first elk of the season, every time I walk up to them, I'm like, damn, these things are big. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. What's the largest number of pack animals, riding animals you had at one time? Like I owned? Yeah. Uh, I think it was 52. What was the worst of them? Like individuals? Yeah. Um, Do you remember its name? Yeah, so the worst, I actually had a set of mules, and there was Peter, Piper, Pickles, Pepper, (laughs) and Pickles (laughs) did not last. (laughs) so So, and I bought, I had sets of them like that, and we would... Whenever we would buy a set, we would have like a theme, yeah. right? So it in whatever the popped into somebody's head, we'd kind of discuss it as a, you know, with the guides or whatever in the bunkhouse, but we'd always do themes like that. And I remember those because I bought them with the outfitting business. And I remember this pickles mule, all the, all, like the reality is none of this set were great at first, but this pickles uh, mule like from across the corral had like the the look in her eyes that was like N- I'm never going to get better. Yeah. You know. So she didn't last, but that's probably the worst mule I had. I had several that like they made it through years of outfitting just because they had some sort of trait that justified me to tolerate bad aspects of them. Like something know? that was really redeeming. Yeah, like like no problem packing bears out. Like that was redeeming you could be really really bad but if you didn't get all snorty and crappy around bears like i could tolerate a lot you know a lot of mules have an ism of one kind or another yeah like there's there's something that they just can't handle so if you find a really steady one that's that's pretty rare but they've i think they've all got a chink in their armor or something yeah 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 Yeah. and they're kind of like i always view them as mules if they have one thing that they don't like you they're kind of like, uh, you know, you always get that advice about when you're younger, you always get that advice about women. Like, don't don't get a girlfriend or or marry somebody that you think you're going to change them later on. Mm. There's an aspect of that that applies to mules. Yeah. You know, if they, if they have a really bad trait, don't bet on the fact that you're going to be able to turn it around. You so know? what was Pickle's deal? So she was just mean. And sometimes you'll get one like that that's mean. Um, and I don't know... Sometimes I wonder if 
mules, their memory doesn't get to them. And depending on whatever their history was, whatever they were broke or whatever, in my mind, I think there's like maybe a couple situations in her life that might have just made her mean. Yeah. You know? Had and some, I, the re- some scar tissue there. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the same deal with mules are, are less forgiving um, in that regard. Like, I kind of recall situations. I think anybody who's had, uh, you know, a pet dog or any animal that requires, like, some sort of, like, discipline or training, there'll be a moment where you get upset at them. You, you yell at them louder than you should or something like that, and then you regret it. With mules, you never have to regret it because they're going to remind you. Yeah. Like, they're going to they're gonna get, like, I, I mean, this could be woo-woo, but I feel like there's, I might have, like, yelled at a mule or snapped a chain over a mule's nose, like, harder than I should have. And then, like, 12 hours later in the dark, like, Alice the mule is looking at me like, this is my moment. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I really truly believe it's that. It's my time to shine. I'm sure there's people that listen yeah. and they're like, that's total bullshit, but... Uh, I think that's the truth about mules. Whereas I think horses have a little, a little less of that. They're a little more forgiving. Yeah. I mean, horses can definitely develop a bad relationship with people and get to the point where, you know, they've just got psychological damage and you you almost can't get them back out of it again. Sure. And, you know, some people are, are abusive to all kinds of animals. And I think we've all kind of like had, or like had a friend that had that that pound dog that like, Oh, they, they don't like men or, um, you know, they're, they're scared of newspapers and it's like, Oh, something bad happened to this dog. Sure. And, uh, yeah. Mules almost seem like they can make sport of it at times. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And I think what comes with that is more personality. What was the, what was the best of them? The best of my mules or horses. Yeah. So let's talk about mules. Cause I got like a, yeah, I got a thing for them, but, um, and not that I didn't have good horses at the time, but I actually had, I always had a thing for big Belgian cross mules. Yeah. And I, I think it's just like the disposition that would come with them. And I've talked to guys that have a different opinion about them and maybe they had, you know, they just had a different strain of them or whatever. But to me, they were always, you could get them docile, Yep. you know, and they were the right size, the right pace. I think the way I packed, I was never in like a huge hurry, mm-hmm. and uh, those mules just kind of fit me. And I had uh, I had one named Julie, and uh, she was probably my favorite mule. Matter of fact, she's still alive because I saw her a couple weeks ago. They live a long time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. I know for a fact that there's still there's still mules. There's a bunch of mules that I bought with my business. I sold with my business a decade later, and I've talked to guys that worked for that business a decade before I was even around and those still mules are still there. Yeah. So they live long, but plus they have a longer working life. Yep. You know? Yeah. No, there's, there's 40 year old mules that are mm-hmm. still out there packing weight in the mountains and that simply doesn't happen with horses. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. For those that don't know, uh, what is a mule? How do you make a mule? Yeah. So it's just a cross between a horse and a donkey. And, uh, because of that, it seems to me that most mules, like when I categorize mules, I tend to categorize them by the horse, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm sure there's people that are more into raising mules that have a deeper understanding of that. But usually, like I described Julie, like a Belgian cross mule, or it could be like a Morgan mule. Like you see a lot of these 
really pretty mules that come out of the Amish country. They're smaller mules, and I think they're using them for for carts and they're using them for work. And like that's a specified type of mule that's based on the horse. They're you know like they're 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 crossing them with like light draft horses. So yeah. that's how I categorize them. Um, but that's what they are. And I, I have heard that there's mules now that can breed, but typically mules are sterile. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an odd case that they can, they can breed. And there's lots of different kinds of donkeys, although we're not as familiar with that world mm-hmm. as we are with horses. But like my, my grandma, when she was packing in the Sierras, um, raising, you know, my dad and aunts and uncles as kids in the in the mountains of California, they used mammoth jacks. Yeah. Great, great big donkeys. Yeah. And they were really gentle and, you know, they were really happy to, to throw an infant in, in those packs yeah. and, and be confident that that jack was going to take care of them. Some of my favorite mules are draft mules as well. Yeah. That are mixed with a draft horse. And, you know, you can put a, a, a lot of weight on them. They tend to be a little bit calmer all the time. Uh, there was a, a pair of mules when I was first learning to pack um, named Bert and Ernie, and they were yeah, both yeah. Belgium crosses. Everybody's got a Bert mule. Yeah, you yeah. ought to have a Bert mule yeah, if yeah. you're going to have a big one. Uh, Bert would set his foot on top of my foot whenever I worked on the front end of the pack, and he was huge. You yeah, know, yeah. This is a 2,000-plus pound animal, sure. and it made me really nervous, but uh, he was so sweet. It was almost like he was holding hands, kind of. Yeah, yeah like um, he wasn't going to put the weight on him. Yeah, but yeah, he yeah. would just do that every time. And he just had the longest, softest ears. And uh, he loved to put his head in your chest. And uh, I would sleep with him uh, in the in those meadows in the backcountry yeah, sometimes yeah. and just go lay on him. And um, th- that's, that's such an irreplaceable feeling of, like, being, you know, a, a teenager – you know, guiding in a, in a wilderness area, packing somebody's gear in there and then going out in the middle of some, some meadow that's cold and there's dew on the grass and snuggling up against a oh, great yeah. big mule. Like it's pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean like the horse packing, mule packing again, like not to get too woo woo, but I, I have a feeling that it's like ingrained in humans. I mean, we've been using them a long time and it's, I look back on all the years of packing and there's not a lot of rational thinking in there. There's a, there are a massive amount of work, you know, hunting with them is a ton of work. And I think some people have a hard time understanding, like they'll go on one, one horseback hunt, one packing hunt. And they're like, I don't understand why you would hunt this way. And the thing is, is like, you have to get a grip on that part of it. Part of the experience is the horses and mules. Yep. Like that is part of the deal. And sometimes it takes a while for people to realize that. And then, and then I think you get into that, that mode of realizing that, yeah, like this is part of the experience and it's awesome and it's irreplaceable. And there's probably a part of us that's so just like generations of using horses to, to, uh, you know, as a major like beast of burden throughout human history is pretty wild. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm making this up, but it sure seems like it's, ingrained in us you know and i and i'm i'm even obsessed with like the history like like listening to i can't remember um oh what is it uh he used to have he he used to have a podcast and i think now it's behind a paywall but the history of the mongols Mm. and like he goes it's uh oh like dan carlin yeah he has a good series on him and he talks about the the horse stuff 
And uh, you hear him talk about like these guys having, you know, seven or eight horses, uh, you know, a piece all the time or not seven or eight, like I think 70 or 80 uh, horses in their, you know, them, their wives, they just lived off that and they moved around like that. And it's crazy to think about and reflect on not just going on an elk hunting trip and dealing with them for 10 days, like your whole life. Yeah. You know, and it's not just Mongols. There's so many people in history that every morning they woke up and they harnessed horses or they saddled horses, you know, pretty wild. And I'll, sh- I'll shout out Dan, uh, the hardcore history podcast. That is the best I don't know, the best way for me to interface with history that I've ever encountered. He gets really deep into into subjects that typically get glossed over, but he does so in a way that's very engaging. Yeah. And yeah, you, you do have to, to pay for, for most of those episodes now, but they're very much worth it. And if you're going to pay for an audiobook or something like that, this is a this is a good show to support. So sure. for those who are into history, I highly recommend you check that one out. Yeah, man. 52 animals. Dude, you had a huge, huge outfit and I'm still trying to kind of wrap my mind around it. I don't think I've ever had more than like eight guides working for me at a time. Uh, so the, the scale of what you were doing, both in terms of like the number of people that were working for you, the number of animals you had to take care of, the number of clients that you were dealing with, uh, it's it's just massive. So, kind of talk me through what that that large scale outfitting business looks like. So, I think uh, when I look at it, how I I separated it in my mind, right? Like I had a hunting and guiding business, and then I had a logistics business. Yeah. You know, like my packing logistics right. business. And I think over time, I realized like. I was running two different businesses and of course there was overlap with staff and, and all of that. But in a sense, once I realized that I made much better decisions about, uh, the staff I had, how I scheduled, you know, the different ways I managed the business. And what I ended up having was I had a lot of crew. It's, it's very hard to find somebody nowadays that say really wants to be, a will, you know, they want to hunt elk in the wilderness. They want to guide people in the wilderness, but they're also able to, you know, take care of 40 horses and, you know, do a lot of your own doctoring and that sort of thing. It's hard to find somebody. I think there's people who really like guiding hunters. And I think there's horse guys. Yep. And I found that one of the keys to my business was to, to find those guys, right? Like, and, and I had a lot of Amish guys that worked for me on the horse side. And it's, um, it's very often two different people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if, if I'm going to do a, a backcountry wilderness hunt now with livestock, I almost won't do it unless somebody is going to dedicate themselves towards, you know, taking yeah. care of that oh, stock yeah. and, and just live at camp and understand that like, that's what they're going to do. Like, you know, me and mom and Kirk will go out and mom is pumped to just stay in camp. Even yeah, if, yeah. even if I'm going to be out for a couple of days like whatever. And then she can take the horses to water twice a day and make sure elk or wolves don't run, yeah. run through everything and cause a big drama. And if you don't have that, oftentimes you're leaving your hunt right during the time that you need yeah. to be there to go take care of the stock. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the thing is, is like this time of year, right? In September, people always would think, okay, Guiding wilderness elk hunts, you know, horseback stuff, mules, whatever. Um, 
in September, it's nice. The mountains are nice. The weather's usually not that brutal, but it's the hardest on staff because the days are so long. Yeah. And when you throw in horses to deal with up on the mountain, I don't think people really conceptualize, uh, you know, you want to hunt those prime hours in the morning. You want to be riding home in the pitch black dark so you can hunt the prime hours in the afternoon. Well, if you do that, when a guide gets back to camp, he's got to feed those horses. He's got to take care of all that, do the saddling, all of that before he even eats dinner. And then he's got to get up early to hit the prime hours in the morning. I think personally that's the hardest hunt to guide that I've ever been around. Is an archery elk hunt horseback in the mountains out of a wall tent camp. I like to this day, you know, I'll admit that I was burnt out on guiding that type of hunt. But I have guys that uh, work for me for years that, that are just so tough that they don't have a, they still like doing it. And they amaze me. Yeah. You know, um, because it's the hardest hunt. It, you know, people want to talk about sheep hunting, goat hunting, and all this other stuff. You know, the backpack hunts or whatever. To me, it all that doesn't matter. In terms of the psychological strain of guiding, that's the worst. You know, and it's hardest. And because of that, it's the hardest to find competent guides. For sure. You know? And even if you find people who are willing to do it, you get such a diminished return after a certain amount of time. Like, we're sitting here September 21st, so I've guided for, you know, you know, 21, 20 days straight or something so far this year. I've worked uh, over 450 hours this month. Yeah. You know, it, it takes a lot out of you, and you get to the point where your memory starts to fail really quickly. Uh, you know, you can't remember what you did that morning. Every day kind of feels like three days yeah, yeah, sure. and you have a hard time remembering like where people have been hunting. You know, I was joking the other night that I think I could legitimately get to the point where I might forget that I had a hunter out in the field and like, yeah, leave sure. them out there. Yeah. 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 Well, it's just, it's constant, right? You get the, the, the constant pressure of things. And at the same time, the next client that comes, the next you know, if it's not in the guiding scenario, if you're if you're just hunting a lot and you've got a your next family member to come hunt with you or whatever, it's like it's still like the peak of their hunting season, right? So you don't want to go into hunts beat up and tired and all that. So that it, that almost creates like an additional stressor, you it know, because you know, like this is important to the next person, even though I'm kind of ready, I'm ready for you know the sun to go down on September. The next person, it's like they're there are five days that they look forward to the whole year or whatever. So. Even like by this point in the month, you know, we've got half an hour less daylight than we did in yeah. the beginning. And that half hour makes a really big difference to the oh, guides. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like that's, you know, sometimes an extra like 20% more yeah, yeah, sleep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. So you would start guiding when? Um, in terms of the season? Yeah. So our big hunting season, I had a, you know, I had a much smaller fly fishing business, but that would keep some of my guides busy starting whenever the snow would melt. So it'd be like July 1st or whatever. But uh, most of my, like the peak of my business was August 15th through the end of the fourth rifle season. And when I say August 15th or August 10th or whatever is when we started to put in all of our camps. Yep. And that can be, you know, in a way that's where everybody's fresh and, uh, things go smoothly typically that time of year you got good weather but it's a lot of work when you 
putting in all those wall tent camps. It's just is I would say that's more of a physical part of the season, you know. Um so that we'd start then and then we would hunt basically wilderness wall tent camps depending on the year till 10th of November or something like that and then we'd do some lodge hunting after that. And then I had a smattering of different type of hunts that would go maybe a little bit later than that, but that was basically our season. So how many clients would go through your operation in a year? Yeah, so it, I, when I started, it, the business had shrunk a whole lot, but it had a lot of capacity in terms of like a federal permitting standpoint. So I went from doing like a dozen hunts in the beginning to I think probably my peak year between all the hunts and not necessarily just in the flat tops. I had some other little things, some private stuff I leased and those sort of things. I did somewhere close to 250 hunts. That's incredible. Yeah, logistics is such a massive part of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, massive part of that. Logistics, communication. Uh, yeah, I, I I, honestly can't imagine the the scale of that. How many people did you have working for you? So it would, it would fluctuate a lot, but you know, during the, the rifle seasons and I, there, I mean, there's two components of that. One, I'm like, like, I guess like probably an over optimizer. So I, I had a lot of guys that worked for me for a couple of weeks, you know, year after year. And then I had full-time crew and I just kind of knew when, you know, when the peak of my season was in terms of everything, but max, I had probably close to 20 guys there, 18 guys or something like that. And they all, they all either were living in camps or they were living at our place, yeah. like our pack station. Um, and, uh, and then I'd have some guys that, you know, I, I dealt with more, more staff than that during the year, but that would be peak, like on site doing work or guiding I'd have. Um, and that, I mean, if anybody out there who's listening, who wants to get into the outfitting business, or I think probably any outdoor recreation business is that's like the whole key to it with the people. I mean, there's like nothing, nothing else, you know, and I throw horses and mules in there too, basically like labor, right? Having the right ones. Yeah. That's, it's like the whole business. Did the Amish help you keep your gear up? Yeah. So the Amish guys, and I had several of them work for me for five or six years, they essentially took over where they had primary responsibility over tack, packing, and some of the horse care stuff. And then they, the other thing that I always found was interesting and very helpful is they took care of all all my traditional saw stuff. Mm. So all my cross cuts, all my axes, all that stuff. Um, they were like in charge of keeping that up to speed, sharpening it, all that. And probably due to listeners, that sounds like, like a very minor component of it. But they probably never tried to sharpen a cross cut saw. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it's not just sharpening, it's tuning as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is such an incredible skill. It's so incredible that at sawmills, oftentimes the two highest paid workers are the electrician and uh, the guy who's in charge of sharpening. Yeah. Everything. It keeps things sharp. Sure. So, uh, so that was a part of the business that they, they helped me a lot on. I would say that was one of my biggest assets when I left was, was having them. Uh, help me on that and uh and I say them dude I mean these guys like Mark kind of my head my head horse guy at the time packing guy I mean, he worked for me for six or seven years yeah you know? so, so that's a good guy it's like family at that point yeah yeah yep. totally yep but um so yeah that was the the horse component of it and the same deal guides I had guides 
that worked for me for six or seven years, and they started to. Uh, well, it's funny because guides are. I don't know, like they tend to be. There's a certain personality type, and for better or worse, guides. Even if you're working for the same team, uh, I think all outfitters deal with this. There's not always like the the steady flow of information that one might think. You know what I mean? And uh, but what I noticed is guides that work for me for five, six years or whatever, once they get to that six or seven year, they start to know the country so well. They got, they've got plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They become very good trainers of your new guys. You know, you never have a guide who's, who's only at it for two or three years, train your new guys. Cause he's just inherently, these are generalizations, but generally they will not transfer much knowledge to your new guy. Cause they're, they don't want to compete with them. You know mm. what I mean? So uh, just stuff, little things like that I learned over time, but they're all people, staff related stuff that helped. Tell me about the flat tops. Yeah, so the flat tops, when people talk about the flat tops, they usually talk about a much broader area than the wilderness area. I always looked at it as people would talk about the flat tops from like, in in my world, from Yampa, you know, down to Glenwood Canyon, uh, all of that country in there, um, you know, up past Meeker. And really they're talking about an area that's probably like a million acres. But the wilderness component of it, I may be slightly off on this number, but it's around 240,000 acres. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's a plateau. And it, it's interesting because a lot of the access points, particularly on the south side and the south and the east side that I operated in were low elevation access points. And then you went up to the plateau. So the low elevation being like what? Oh, like 7,500 feet, 8,000 feet, 9,000 feet access points. So that's pretty high yeah, for, yeah, for a yeah. lot of people. Yeah. They wouldn't be like, when I think about like the collegiates or something like that, you can drive up to 12,000 feet. You can drive, you know what I mean? You can get your elevation behind you. Um, there's not a lot of that in the flat tops, but yeah, it's all high elevation. Okay. Yep. So you're starting around, you know, 7,000 feet or higher. And then how high is it at the top? So the, the plateau kind of rolls at timberline and it's, it's, you know, in that 12, 12, five range. Gotcha. You know, we don't have much higher than that. We don't have like the 14 or type of peaks. Um, and the, the flat tops in my view from all the wilderness that I've been in, in Colorado, it's ideal horse country mm. because you can work the elevation up with your horses. And then when you're on the top, you can travel. Yeah. Distance, you know, um, and it's been, I think part of the, the outfitting dynamic in the flat tops and, you know, one, there's a tremendous amount of public opportunity for elk in the flat tops. There always has been the way that it's managed, the tag allocations, uh, to this day, there's several different opportunities that somebody can just buy a tag and go hunt the flat tops, depending on the, there's several units in there. Um, but it's always been an opportunity place. It's been great elk habitat, but there's always been a lot of outfitting pressure. And I think it's just historically anybody who's got some history packing horses, they look at that country and go like, this is the spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure you've been in mountain ranges and stuff. Not all places are like that. For sure know? not. Yeah. For sure not. There's a lot of this country, you know, next door to us in Idaho that is really tough to access with horses. Yeah really tough it, it's just a little bit craggier and 
you know, it, it's tremendous country, but it's just a little bit tough to get around yeah, yeah, horses sure. for a lot of it. Yep. The, that interface between public hunting and outfitters on public land is an interesting one. And there's a lot of conflict that can come from that. How did you deescalate that? And like, how, how did you sort of navigate those murky yeah. waters? So I think it's an interesting topic for a bunch of reasons. Uh, James, one, it's changed a lot historically. I would say that like 30 years ago, you know, uh, my, my dad did some outfitting. If you talk to any of the old time outfitters, the general consensus amongst outfitters was uh, the public's not welcome. Yeah. You generally, I'm not, not all of them, but generally that was the go-to strategy because, you know, the, the more abrasive you were with the public, the idea was that you'd have to deal with less of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I always had the mindset that by the time I was really active in the business, um, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. It just, it didn't make a lot of logical sense. And then also I didn't want to deal with like the negativity. Right. That was my view. But if I focused on just the logical part of it, I mean, it, it for how for how capable guys are now, the fact that there's, you know, some, you know, butt wipe on a horse that's not nice around is not going to deter these guys that are now willing to, you know, do a lot of, a, you know, aggressive hike, backpack hunting, that sort of thing. They've got great gear. So that wasn't a factor. And to me, like I said, like why have the negativity around? So my, I mean, I had several ways I dealt with it and you get, it's a slippery slope, right? Because you're still hunting and you still got clients. And so you want to, you know, you're trying to protect your spots. You're trying to keep the experience of your clients good so that was always my intention when I dealt with the public. And I think as particularly as I increased like my social media presence, I had more interaction, mm-hmm. right? Like not necessarily like in the field, but a lot of people, if they knew they were going to hunt the, fl- the part of the flat tops where I was, it's pretty easy to figure out where I was. Right. You could call a forest service guy. You could just Google it and pretty quick, you'd know kind of where I was. So I get a lot of calls. They're like, where are your camps? You know, where are you hunting? And that sort of stuff, I I just was, I was vague like any other hunter would be. You know, I never lied to people or anything like that, but I tried to give them guidance so their experience was better. And, and at the same time, I didn't have trouble in the field with my hunter's experience. So that's how I always navigated it. It's hard, you know, because there's always this feeling, not all public hunters, but I feel like a lot of the public feels like outfitters just shouldn't be there. Yep. You know what I mean? And part of their logic, uh, I understand. Yeah. Like I understand that. I understand part of the logic when people, they talk about, you know, cattle grazing or sheep grazing, all of that, you know, part of what people will say to me, I understand. And then a part of it, I don't, you know what I mean? And I know the history and, and all of that, but I understand people's concern that, hey, this is a public space. What I'm trying to do seems to be um, affected by, you know, commercial outfitters, cattle guys, sheep guys, whatever. So there's always these clashing, these clashing interests on the forest. But, you know, that from the beginning, the forest was set up that there, that that's just going to be how it is. Designated you know I mean? multi-use. Yeah, that's, that's like the mandate of the forest. And uh, I think we all probably 
not to like go down that rabbit hole. I think it's good for us to all understand that. Like, for instance, there's a lot of outfitters that hate cattle guys, hate them. And I always took the tack that like any justification I have to, you know, severely limit their usage, make their life miserable or whatever, that same justification could be used towards me as an outfitter. It could also be used towards me as a, as a public, as a member of the public hunting. You know, I think, I think there's a little, I think hunters forget that sometimes, yeah. you know what I mean? That's still a usage and maybe we forget about it because we're up in the mountains. We're with the, we're seeing the cattle guys, we're seeing the outfitters, uh, we're seeing other public land hunters, but there's, there's another part of public land ownership that's not out there. It's not, not, maybe not be a big fan of any of that, you know? So that's how I think about it. The last time I saw a public land permit come up in this area, it was a quarter million dollars to buy that permit. Yeah. I think that a lot of people don't realize just how expensive it is just to get the access to go in there and be able to operate commercially in an area. And that wasn't for a big area. How big was the area that you were operating in? Yeah. So, uh, you mean like landmass? Yeah. Or, yeah. So, so there's two ways to think about it. You can think about like the, the landmass that a permit covers, mm-hmm. right? And then you can think about the day use that it covers. And that's okay. usually, that's, that's, I mean, every state's a little bit different and, and we can get into the nitty gritty of it. So every, even though the forest is managed by a federal agency, each state is a little bit different in terms of how they manage things. And then each ranger district, each forest is a little bit different. And so this can vary widely. Um, but generally, your outfitting permits are going to transact on your cur- commercial day use, right? So you're going to have like, you're going to have X amount of elk hunting days. You're going to have X amount of, you know, lion hunting days or whatever the different specification. And that again, that varies by where your permit is administrated at, out of. It might just be a thousand hunting days or whatever. So that's generally how they trade. In the spectrum of permits, mine was big. It wasn't like it's not one of the, it's not the biggest hunting permit in the in the U.S. by any means, um, but it's one of the bigger ones in terms of like the the scale of it. In the flat tops was kind of known for big permits because of that horse thing, big elk herd historically. Um, but yeah, you know people have to buy them. Um, generally, they're no longer created. That tends to be the norm across uh, all the states. They're right. not. They're not. You know, there's. I think there's so much pushback and there's so much more uses that are arising mountain bikes or e-bikes or you know these different these new things that the the land managers have to deal with they're very hesitant to issue a new permit i i I haven't heard of one i've heard guys expanding permits a little bit that sort of thing uh but it's pretty it's pretty limited i think that goes in the cattle world and everything else too and within river permits if you're guiding whitewater fishing you can have multiple outfitters that that are operating on that river for outfitters that are back in, in the mountains, it tends to be one outfitter per area. Was that yeah. the case where you were? Yeah. So again, this is something that slightly varies a little bit by ranger district, but so you might have a little overlap with your neighbor, but generally you don't, they, they try to have borders because outfit, like we, we, we touched on the outfitter public, uh, hunter, um, conflict that that's something that's very easily mitigated i i personally think that if everybody's polite and follows just like you know golden rule type of stuff no problem 
when you get where you're buttoned up, you know, outfitter to outfitter conflict is a, it's a harder thing to, to get over and deal with. So they try to keep guys separate, just yeah. logical, you know? Yeah. The last time I hunted Colorado, I backpacked way back into an area and it was, it was fourth season rifle hunt. Mm-hmm. And we ran into some outfitters back there that were just dumbfounded that we'd walked back in there that yeah, far. Yeah. And they're pretty upset. Yeah. It's like, well, man, I'm not from around here. I'm just trying to, yeah, find, you're trying just to trying to find some elk. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, I tried to talk to them about like what their plan was, where they're hunting, yeah. uh, you know, ways that I could stay out of their way. I was willing to go to places that their clients were never, ever going to go to. Yeah. And they, they just didn't want to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, gosh, we're going to be stepping on each other. Yeah. And, and that's I, that's exactly what ended up happening. Another person from my party ended up killing a bull that, that they'd been hunting pretty yeah. hard. And, uh, you know, we, we really could have mitigated that. There's yeah. enough elk to go around. Yeah. And that, like, to be transparent about it, James, like, the way I thought about it, if if guys were there to stay... I was like, let's, let's figure it out. So yeah. everybody's better off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, yeah, this is, it's part of the deal. Yeah. You know, in the end, that's the thing, man. I apologize to anybody that thinks this is just an outfitter and talking self-serving in, in a self-serving way. But in the end, like an outfitter's clients, they're, they're still public land hunters. They really are. You know, in a sense, outfitters in the States, particularly Colorado, all they are is a service provider. I don't have control over tags. Yeah, ain't none of that. So like, so if I don't have control over tags, um, I don't have, you know, really control over the management of the wildlife in that area. I have no, you know, private property right to public wildlife or anything like that. If, if those are all the case, how can you call me a wildlife pimp? I'm right. more a taxi driver. Right. You know what I mean? That's how I viewed it. And, yeah. and, so that was my my thought on all, all always is like, look, my guys, my clients got tags, just like the public guys out there. The public guys have maybe worked a little harder to get in there. You know, my guys have paid, you know, in a, in a way for the service to get the access. But once we're in there, the golden rule applies. Like we got to treat each other like we'd want to be treated. So that's my thought. What stories come to mind where you had emergencies that you had to deal with? Yeah, so... Uh, I had I had two that pop up in my mind. One was before in reaches, and uh, I, we can go into the details of that. And then one was within reaches, uh, and I used an in reach, you know, the SOS uh, deal on that in reach. Uh, both both were horse related, mm. um, and so do you want to hear a story? Owen? I do. I love okay. stories. Cool. And so I had. A guy named Tom. He owns a. He owned for years. He owned uh, several like high end Western wear shops in Aspen and Caesar's Palace and some other places. And uh, he uh, he liked. He wasn't a hunter. He liked to do summer trips, and he'd bring friends with him typically. And he or he'd bring some of his staff that worked in these Western wear shops. He came several times, and then he called me one day, and he wanted to do the re- most remote as possible. Uh, backpack trip, you know, in, in the flat tops. And I like knew the spot and I, and I had a summer camp in that spot. It's a beautiful spot. Love to stay in there. Basically like a seven hour horseback ride in. Um, but good country. Once you got up is pretty flat. So we, uh, we planned the trip. Um, he's like, I'm bringing some great people. 
and this was early on, like I'd been at it for two or three years. I was excited for the trip. And I remember they showed up all great people, but I remember asking one of the clients, uh, Tim's wife, and I can't remember her name. Uh, I said, Oh, are you looking forward to the camping trip? And she's like, yeah, it's my first one. And I was like, wow, this is like a pretty big bar for your first camping You're trip. You're taking man. a big bite. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, you know. And so I was like, okay, we'll, we'll see how this goes. But we had it, we, it, it, overall the camping deal was fun. But on the way in, we, uh, we went in, I had several staff with me, probably, I don't know, 30 minutes from camp. And, that, and I found over time that tends to be when this kind of crap happens. Um, I had a string of mules in the back. I had one of my staff in the front leading. I heard a bunch of yelling, heard heard crashing, <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, and then Tom, and these guys were competent horseback riders yeah. too. Yeah. All had experience with horses. And uh, a matter of fact, the the individual that the, the wreck happened to, he was riding his own horse at the time. But Tom comes riding down the trail at me, and he quietly but nervously looks at me and goes cliff tim's dead and i went what and uh that was it i was like okay like got the info i guess yeah and so i i cruise up and i'm looking down the hill like it's a steep switchback and i'm looking down and i see tim's horse kind of stick you know standing on a rotten log and the saddles on the side and no tim so I'm like, okay, probably pretty good information. Maybe he is dead because it's way down there. Like we're talking like, I don't know, like nine, ten stories down the thing. And it's pretty darn steep. And I remember I'd never seen Tim without his cowboy hat on. Mm. And I see this like glint, this shiny glint of a bald head. And I was like, yes, he's not dead. Because he stood up and, and he's like, I, I'm right here. And I was like, all this, this epic relief right and then immediately my heart sank again when he held his hand up and like the fingers were pointed in all different directions <laughs> his hand was like mangled uh, you know what i mean i'm like whoa wow so he got rolled over a couple yeah, times. yeah he got rolled over only his hand was was damaged like a trooper you yeah. know what i mean and i think that this trip more than anything made me judge people a little bit less on their background because mm. Tim, Tim is a, like a very successful uh, public company, C-level guy. You know what I mean? Somebody that probably gets doted over in his day-to-day life. And like his toughness in this situation was epic. Cause like, I mean, you're talking like, like four of your five fingers, not just broken, but like mangled, right. you know? So, uh, we, uh, we, did, we dealt with it. We actually, we had to spend the night in there. He was a trooper the whole time. He'd never caught, he'd never caught a uh, fish period hmm. in his life. And, uh, before we left and, and dealt with the situation that next morning, uh, I took him fly fishing in like, uh, some of these high country streams are four and a half feet wide. Like you a know? sidewalk. Yeah. But you can catch those beautiful, like just like these little native cutthroats that are like, when you pick them up, they're not impressive by their size, but the color is just like, I don't know how to describe it. You know what I mean? But you know what I mean? Like no, just they're, stunning. They're like something from science fiction. They're, yeah, they're yeah. impossibly bright. Yeah. Yeah. So with his like crushed hand, we got that done. That's which cool. Which was cool. 
So, so that was probably uh, good job on living, Tim. Proud of you. Yeah, yeah, dude. He's yeah. a he's a uh, he's a stud. And the the crazy thing about it is, uh, and he worked within the uh, within the Las Vegas gambling space. Like, I don't know, maybe six months later, I get this this news article sent to me. Because he uh, he showed up to a gambling commission with his with his arm, mm. you know, he working on this deal that ended up being like a like a year process. I think multiple surgeries and stuff to solve his hand. And the reporters like wanted to hear the story, and he told the story, and it's awesome. That's you awesome. know what I mean from his yeah. perspective. Because I in a way I miss the action, right? You know what I mean. But it's like the whole like you know like Louis L'Amour version of it you know what i mean like the horse rolling down the hillside you know uh you know life flashing you know across his mind is is this is like the end or whatever and so it, like i i i've got the article and stuff is awesome to to see that you know he made the best out of like a situation and i think it's like an adventure of a lifetime for him because of that you know yeah you know the first times that i was dealing with like horse and mule wrecks and you know growing up on a ranch i'd seen like animal disasters my whole yeah, life yeah, so sure. i wasn't brand new to it but yeah i was at, at, at one time brand new to it in the wilderness when i was by myself and i would try to stop the problem while it was still occurring yeah, yeah. and i was talking uh you know with another guide who's a close friend of mine now and he's like man you just need to stay out of it until everything quits breaking yeah like you're you're just going to get hurt if you try and get in the middle of it and oftentimes when you have these things unfolding that is really the best thing to do is just stay out of it until everything stops and sometimes this wreck can occur over the course of of a mile or more yeah yeah and you're just listening to like figure out where all these animals end up and where all this gear ends up strewn across the the mountainside and and then you just kind of start yeah, figuring yeah. out which ropes need to get cut and, yeah, yeah. and, and start over and, and put the pieces back together and, you know, calm all the animals down and make sure nobody's hurt and assess everything and then just continue the job. I can see, you know, why people are, are intimidated by kind of getting into that, that horse and mule packing scene. It would be a very intimidating thing to do if, if you didn't have a background with it already or, or kind of grow up with it. But you can have some really wonderful experiences that you would not otherwise be capable of having without that stock. Oh yeah, sure. You know, packing, packing is something that can occur for, for clients in a few different ways. So you can have like a fully outfitted camp in the back country where, you know, they're going to bring you in their horseback. They're going to bring all, all your stuff in, uh, the camp is going to be set up for you. They're going to cook and guide you the whole time that you're there, help you recover the animal. But there's also such a thing as a drop camp, which is yeah. a, a really good option for people that I don't think enough folks realize is an option. Yeah. So tell me about what, what a drop camp is and sort of which hunter that would appeal to the most. And not just hunters, like anybody that wants to go into the backcountry yeah, sure. with, with gear. Yeah, and I and I'll tell you what it is, and I'll tell you what it isn't, because I think that's just as important. James. I agree. Um, and the the thing about elk hunting, and like you said, you could do this. I did a lot of drop camp, like fishing style things. I think they're a great option for that too. Um, but the economics of elk hunting, it gets more and more expensive, you know, every year. And I don't, 
see that going away. So a drop camp is is a good way um, to you know with a you know at a decent value get a pretty cool experience. But I think people should go into it with the with the right mindset. And the in terms of the actual service, what mine were, and this is going to be, I, w- I would say drop camps are they're like the commodity of the outfitting uh, world. They're pretty similar across mm-hmm. outfitters. So you're going to have a wall tent camp, maybe, you know, maybe one big 16 by 20 wall tent. If it's a group of three or four guys, if it's a bigger group, you might have an additional tent. You know, there's some differences there. You're going to have cots or in my camps, you had cots, you had pads, you had a wood stove in the wall tent, you had a propane stove in there, all your pots and pans, um, any of that stuff. I actually had a service and I think probably, um, intelligently the guys who bought my business, I don't think they do it anymore, but I used to do food too. I'd Mm -hmm. prep food, you know, you have somebody prep food for them and how, you know, bring the food and stuff too. So I'd do meal prep, um, which, uh, which was a great service. I never, I never made any profit off of it. So it wasn't a great business, but I like doing it and and guys liked it. So I did that, but it's just a well-equipped camp pack you in, pack out any game you kill, uh, back to the pack station, hang it, cool it, take it to the processor. That was all included. It varies a little bit by outfitter. And then we'd pack you out. That's, that's the deal. And then while you're in there, you're hunting on your own. Um, it varies a little bit by outfitter in terms of how much an outfitter is willing to help you in terms of, uh, knowledge of the area, guidance like that. I was lucky because the it wasn't just the size of my permits. I had a lot of camps for the size of my permits. So I always guided out of a select set of camps and then my other camps were drop camps. So I didn't have like a I didn't have a like I'm not gonna tell you about this spot near your camp because my guides like to hunt it deal. I generally didn't have that. Um, you know, there can be you know, there can be a little overlap just because guides on horses travel a lot that sort of thing so I'm not going to say that never existed but generally I was very open to sharing a lot of information with my drop camp guys you know for listeners you know depending on where you go you'll have to you know in in the individuals you're working with you just gotta have that that expectation may differ a whole lot some guys may not tell you anything they may not know anything you know what I mean a lot of guys just don't hunt their drop camps they just you know they don't know um it, other guys will provide you a lot of, a lot of knowledge and that drop camps it because people always ask me well what is the success rate of a drop camp compared to a guided camp i think if you're if you're it's not a great it's not a great question to ask because again like the guided camp a lot of what you're paying for is service like the you're not doing the chores you're cooking um you know there's horses there you've got the guides so there's a component of that you know obviously the success rate is is much higher too uh on average the guided versus drop camp but i can tell you in in my history of outfitting there are family groups and groups of individuals that came every year and hunted like the same one or two drop camps and they had higher success rate as drop camp hunters than my average guided hunt yep. because they knew the area. Right. You know what I mean? So I think, it, you know, if that's something that appeals to you, um, my thought is one, think about it as maybe a multi-year experience and think about that when you're hunting. So you kind of learn that country. All this wilderness stuff is volatile mm-hmm. and you could go there and hit it right. 
you know, and and then the next year you have a tough hunt. But it's a lot easier if you hit it right and you think about what's going on and try to capture that knowledge. In a tough year, you're going to do a lot better. You know what I mean? Because now you got some knowledge. You can squeak one out probably still, that sort of thing. Um, so I think I think that's uh, one of my biggest pieces of advice related to drop camps. And the other thing is I think there's one big downside of drop camps if people don't plan accordingly. And that's that elk, depending on the season, they can be widely dispersed in an insane amount of habitat. And I don't, you know, a lot of people might cringe at this, but outfitters generally, I I never hunted all my permitted camps every year. I selected which camps I was going to put in based on, you know, the years of experience, right? Like, okay, I think we can hunt this one effectively, you know, and then I've got a buffer enough against this one. That's how I manage them. This one does pretty well in archery season. This one does pretty well during third rifle season. I've got a bunch of deer hunters coming in 2000, you know, 2019. I'm going to put them, I'm going to make sure and put them in here because we did good on deer in 2017. Like that was the extent of my planning. But once those camps are in, the outfitters are not moving these camps around chasing elk with the camps. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and so you have to keep in mind that there's a downside there that you're packed into a location, but if there's not, you know, if there's not any elk within that region and the reality is some of that is self-fulfilling. If you act a certain way in those camps, if, even if there are elk in there, they're going to be gone pretty quick. Dude. So you got to deal with that. But even, but even if at no fault of the hunter, you know, I put guys into camps that, you know, they would call me a day or two days in, like, I cannot find elk. It's like, well, you got to go find them. You know what I mean? You got to go find them, you know? And, And that could be that you're missing little nooks and crannies that are near, near camp, or it could mean that you should have brought a backpack tent in, Yeah. you know? And I, and I hate to say that because I, I think people cringe at that because they think they're buying a spot. Mm. Not, I mean, it's it's still going to be hit or miss. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, you know, there's a couple pieces of advice I'd give to drop camp guys. One is like you are hunting on the way into camp and you're hunting as soon as you get there. So I, I've been in these, these backpack situations, especially where as soon as people get to camp, they're loud they're clanking on stuff. They're talking really loud. It's like, dude, we're hunting right now. Yeah, yeah. Like season might not open until tomorrow, but if you're loud, you're going to blow elk out of this yeah. area. They can hear you from a mile away right now. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you've got to take it really seriously and, and, you know, try and limit, limit your noise, uh, even like smoke and, and food smell yeah, yeah. and things like that. Those are good things to have discipline with. Because if you get yourself in a situation where you've got to go, say, two or three miles away from where you're camped to start hunting, that means you're leaving that much earlier in the dark, getting back that much later, that fatigue is going to set in and that fatigue is very real. So that's one thing. Another thing is people will will think that since they're riding a horse in there, that they're going to show up fresh and it's like... It's like those miles were free yeah, to yeah, get yeah. there. Yeah. And it, it's fatiguing in a very different way yeah, to yeah. ride in. And if you if you haven't been riding much, I, I don't care if you like spent your whole childhood on a horse. 
if it's been a while, oh, yeah. uh, you're going to be you're going to be saddle sore and you're going to hurt really yeah, badly. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you can't still walk, but you're not showing up fresh like you just got yeah, off yeah. the couch at home. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I like to bring a really lightweight setup with me if I'm going to be in a drop camp scenario so that I can go spike out. Yep. So I, I can then go that additional four or five miles and set up something really lightweight. I can hunt out of that off my back. I, I try not to hunt off my back for more than three days at a time Yeah, because that seems to be the three days I can be in like that 35 pound range mm-hmm. in, in relatively cold weather. And that means I can still haul a full load of meat plus my camp back and my, my additional trips, uh, I'm going to go in slick with like nothing but a a headlamp and water and like really haul meat from that point forward. But I think those guys are extremely effective who treat their drop camp like a base camp and then can spike out from there. And that can be. That can be tough, but man, it is dirty effective. Yeah, yeah. And you were talking about one of your guides that you said was just an assassin who just kind of sleep in the rocks. Um, oh yeah, if you yeah, had yeah. To. yeah. Yeah, and there's guys that I had, and I had drop camp hunters, you know, that were that were like that. Like I remember this one older guy. I mean, he was in his mid seventies, and he actually, when I bought the area, he was one of those original twelve clients. Him and him and his uh, buddy. Ross and Jan were their names, and they're from uh, Traverse City. They were they're great guys, mm-hmm. and they taught me a lot of that country because they'd hunted it for twenty years. Oh, what a you gift! Know? Yeah, and uh, um, and this guy, this older guy, um, he uh, he would kill bulls way up in there, and I'd I'd go in there, and he I go in there to pack a bull out. Some of these things were like overnighters, right? Like by the time we got it all packed up, we we really you know, had to stay there tonight and come out the next day, but he would carry a milk jug with water and a blue tarp. And that was like his setup. Yeah. Like he was tough enough to yep. do that. And we're talking like second rifle season, first rifle season. Like it's cold, man. Sure. October 15th, at, you know, 12,000 feet, it gets cold. And he just, yeah, that's what he would do. That was like his form of spiking out. Um, me personally, like I just, I'm not tough enough for that, you know. Um, I've done I've done that a couple times inadvertently, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but but the point is like what you're saying is you can be prepared to do that. And I will say, this is probably something a very good question to ask whoever you're you're working with, like outfitters, because some outfitters frown upon it. They don't want conflict with other drop camps, or they don't want right. you to to go over to, you know, interact with, with, uh, their, uh, you know, their guided camp or, or whatever. And they want to give you boundaries. Um, that was, I'm not saying that that's the wrong way to do it, but I always, I always, I never did that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel like it was relevant. And, uh, and there was a negative side to that. Yeah. You know, you could have guys that left a drop camp and spiked over near another, another drop camp. As long as they, Again, as long as they were being polite, following what I thought were kind of standard rules, it was not, it was what it was. Yeah. Know? And just give them the knowledge. Be like, hey, just so you know. Oh, yeah. I oh, told them yeah, where the yeah. camps were. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then everybody's yeah, yeah. fine. Everybody's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And the craziest thing, I can tell you, I saw this a thousand times, man, when I was guiding up there or between drop camps or whatever. When you're hunting drainages and they're huge drainages, right? And there's a drop camp on this side, on on the east side, and there's a drop camp on the west side, and they're miles away from each other, and they're a long hike from each other, and there's they're not competing. The guys on the west side get up 
in the morning and they glass over to the east side and they're thinking, why in the hell don't those guys go kill those elk? Right. They're surrounded by elk. Yeah. And the guys over here get up and glass over here and be like, why don't they kill those bulls that are bedded right above their camp? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hilarious. Like it happens all the time. And there's so many like, there's these, it's just, it's just perspective. You know what I mean? Uh, And I always thought that was funny because it would be like, oh, well, you know, they came over here. They killed a bull above camp. You know, it's like, well, they could see it, man. And if you don't have a way to communicate, can you really fault them? You know, Um, obviously, if it's like, you know, they knew you were hunting it. They were seeing you out there looking at the bull every day. Yeah, that's not cool. But if there was a bull up there a half mile above your camp that you guys never went up there and looked at, yeah, it's this perspective, you know, and they happen to to see it, you know. So that was my the way I dealt with it. I'd say that a a great big bull who's on his feet to the top of his antlers is never going to be more than eight feet off the ground. Would you say that's about right? Yeah. So you're saying so you're saying just physically. Yeah. 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 From a, a bull standing there and his, I mean, their antlers are never straight up. So I, yeah, probably less, less. than eight feet. Yeah. So that's all the terrain it takes to completely obscure a big old animal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's really, really easy to do. So looking back across Canyon is uh, is a great way to glass glass animals up, but it can take a gargantuan, if not impossible, effort to get over there sometimes. Yeah, oh yeah. Or by the time you do, the information that you acted on was no longer relevant. Right. I have seen more times than not where people deliberated about making a big move uh, longer than it would take them to make the move. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's another thing. In, and if if it's even a question in your mind, like I wonder if we can get there before it, it's dark. Yeah. I think you probably can't. If yeah, you yeah. if you wonder, like if you look at it and you say, "There's no way we can get there by dark." Sure, make a plan for tomorrow. Yeah. But if if it's a question in your mind, just grab your pack and freaking give it and get yeah, over yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you you need one minute of shooting light to yeah, make it yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a this is a topic that I migrated on in the last like four or five years of outfitting, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll I'll give credit to a couple of my best guides that were real aggressive. Like they're more aggressive than I was, um, and we would have arguments about this yeah. this kind of thing all the time. And I started to realize over time that. Like, if you ran the stats on it, it almost always made sense to do it. Yep. You know what I mean? And uh, and, and I started being fairly hesitant to that. But I, I changed over time just based on the data set, you yeah. know? Uh, I had one guy in particular, Evan, who to this day, he's very he's very aggressive. Like, if, he, if there's a chance he can kill him today instead of tomorrow, he's going to do it. Yep. You know? So, yeah, no, I, I, w- I would agree with that. There's just so many things... Uh, that that can that can change you know i tend to be of that mindset on public land like your best opportunity is your first opportunity on private land i might be like next week yeah yeah sure totally different yeah Yeah, yeah totally different situation um and it's not that the elk are acting that much differently it's that there's fewer pressures yeah yeah fewer pressures yeah and and even public land i mean there's I mean, if I'm hunting public land for mule deer second rifle season, you know, pre-rut stuff, and we're able to find a big deer, yeah, I'll wait. You yeah, know what I mean? He's right. in like a little hole, like nobody's found him. 
like probably nobody's gonna find him you know that's why he's there that's different but elk elk i i mean the best analogy i can say is that those elk man that it's like they get enough pressure during those rifle seasons those wilderness areas it's like it's like pinball game you know what i mean that you you're knocking the ball around and sometimes the ball will hang up in a spot next to a paddle and it's just a matter of time before somebody goes over and whacks that paddle and then now the ball's somewhere else. Yep. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just, and it, and it could be in a, where I'd say the majority of the time, it's not necessarily somebody else hunting that bull. It's somebody going under that bull and the bull wins them or whatever. As far as that bull's concerned, if he wins somebody who's just walking by, that somebody was trying to kill him. Right. He's going to move just like any other scenario, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a different game. Is elk the animal most worth hunting in the world? Dude, that's a that's a good question. Um, oh man, given my history, I'd love to say that that it's the the apex of everything. But you're probably asking the wrong guy because I think my dreams in the hunting world are so like uh, location and adventure based mm-hmm. that I don't I, I can't say that it is yeah. for me for me right now in my life it's not yeah you know what I mean for somebody else it is for me right now uh, uh, tar in New Zealand is yeah you know what I mean so uh, so yeah I think having said that though is a North American deal. I hope that every hunter gets a chance to kill one uh, just because like the, the playful kid part of me tells me that I've never walked a guy up, guy or gal to their first elk and had them look at me and be like, it's smaller than I thought it was. Mm. They're just big. They're huge. You animals. know what I mean? And if yeah. you've never had that opportunity um, and it sounds so, so like simplistic or whatever, um, but that's, it's relevant. Yeah. You know, they're just the, the one big you know, big majestic game animal we have here. Yeah. I've, I've guided, you know, a lot of elk at this point, over a hundred thousand pounds of elk I've had in my hands. And especially the first elk of the season, every time I walk up to him, I'm like, damn, these things are big. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a relevant component and you even, you know, being here with you and it's a different experience. Like the, I mean, bugling still, I get off on bugling. I don't know. I always will, you know. It, it's a thrilling thing. Yeah. It's a thrilling thing to hear that sound and and to know what it might mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. To wonder what it might mean. Yeah. And it may, I mean, bugling at its heart is the weirdest sound ever. You know what I mean? Like if you just showed up somewhere and you weren't exposed to elk, you'd be like, what is that? Yeah. Like this this extreme whistle that has like aggression built in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Cliff, it's an absolute honor to to have you out here and to be working with you this year. You have a huge amount of experience uh, that I feel like I'm only beginning to understand a little bit. You're also extremely humble and you're constantly looking not only for ways to learn, but for ways to to show people what you're learning and to help them learn. And I think that that's the greatest power of, of what you're doing with your social media and, and with your YouTube, uh, which is a resource that I use a lot is watching your videos because I learn a lot from them. What's something that you feel like you've learned out here this week? Yeah, man. So, uh, the, the biggest thing that, uh, that I've learned, or let's say it's like ingrained more in me, is that 
uh, elk and the geography, vegetation they're in, all of that differs so widely. Mm. And your tactics, you know, to me, um, like I'm glassing centric. I always have been. And that's a reflection of where, um, where I've hunted, you know, and I enjoy it. Right. That's like a part of like what I, what I like. And, but here, you know, here in this place, you realize like, oh, wow, like that, I I don't know that I've picked up binoculars more than once or twice. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, it's a different topography, different vegetation. And that can't be as big a part of your strategy here. And it's not that, it's not that, hey, like, you know, um, I've learned some special tactic about hunting you know, this type of vegetation, you know, where you can't see as much. It's more the idea that elk can live in a thousand different places, thrive in a thousand different places, and you're going to have to adjust what you're doing based on that. Yeah. That's probably more the the lesson for me. And every time I underestimate that, I get proven wrong, you know. Yeah. Yeah. If I was in the mountains, I would rather like forget my boots and my binoculars. Yeah, yeah. But here, if I left my my knockers behind, like I'd be like, all right, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know. Sure. I I don't know that I need them that much. I still use them, and I use them in a in a very different way here. And I I glass through brush yeah, a yeah. lot. I will glass at a tree um, and try and run my focus so that I can just I, I'll bring that tree into focus. And then I'll move it just slightly enough so that I can see through yeah, it. Yeah. And I end up, you know, glassing on my knees a lot yeah. and, and things like that. But uh, glassing close range is something that that a lot of Western hunters don't develop as a skill. Yeah, yeah. And they often find themselves in situations where they probably should. Yeah. And, man, if you're in a thicket and you can only see 20 yards you should be stopping and running your binoculars from time to time. Yep. Uh, And a lot of guys that don't will end up blowing animals out, whether they're deer or elk or bears or whatever. And uh, it it is an interesting thing. It is an interesting thing. I had a, I had a whitetail guy uh, call that uh, burning the brush. Yep. And I think that's a cool term that gives you the idea to me. That's like, that's yeah, exactly what you do. Um, The thing is, is like, that tactic you're saying that's why i think it is useful to hunt them in different areas james because close range glassing you can use that in the mountains too for sure like you know i i i got where i picked up um you know glassing uh tight aspens that had a bunch of like they were dying aspen groves a lot of deadfall and those mule deer just tuck up against the log or something like that and you can glass only 600 yards with a spotter right and you'll find stuff yeah you know um yeah, yeah. No, i didn't mean to, to interrupt you but it, i think you can apply things if you're hunting them in different different areas too. yeah and and that's part of the reason that i prefer spotting scopes that have a low bottom end power range yeah if you have a spotter that starts at like 20 power or something higher than that uh if you're glassing at less than a thousand yards your field of view is so narrow yeah. that it's not a very efficient method. Uh, so I really like spotters that are in like that 20 to 40 power yeah. or 10, 10 to 40 power range or 10 to 30 power range. But I'll end up using 10 power yeah, more yeah. than anything else. Yeah, I me too. I'll, I would say that like the top 30% of my spotter magnification, I use less than 5% of the time. Most of the time I use it 
when I'm digiscoping, yeah. you know, phone scope or uh, what's the the magnetic one I use now. But um, yeah, I use it for that once yeah. I see things. I don't use it for the actual hunting part of it. I always use lower, you know, lower, lower. I, I mean, I pick up game easier that way too. Uh, you're dealing with, with gear and you're reviewing gear a lot. Uh, what's, uh, what's a piece of gear you want to shout out before we close out this episode? Oh, man. Dude, you know what I'm going to, you know what I'm going to shout out is, uh, the knife sharpeners we use today. I would concur a hundred percent. I'm going to order one of those today. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big company. No, no secret or anything. Uh, but the work sharp, uh, sharpeners. So, there's two of them I actually like, man. The Ken Onion electric one. Yep. So if you're worried about the fact that your fillet knife is a different angle than your honey knife, it's got like a little dial and it works good. And you can you can work different, uh, you know, different roughness in terms of the different belts you put on it. It's handy. I love the thing, particularly once I get my knives real beat up. Yep. I can I can kind of, I have like such a uh, OCD mind, I know like, okay, I can get that exact angle back, whatever I want. So I like that. And then the guys at WorkSharp sent me their small little field sharpener. And I thought that thing was so gimmicky, uh, cause it has like everything on it. Yeah. You know, that is a good piece of gear though. Yeah. It works pretty good. Yeah. works pretty darn good. Good camp sharpener. You For know? sure. And then the, the diamond grip plates on that one pop off. Oh yeah, that's right. So you can, if you want to go slick and lightweight, you can just pop off the diamond grit side oh, okay. and throw it in your pack. Yeah. And then you're really light. But no, that's a, the, that one is a really good piece of gear. I've used that one for years. The Ken Onion one, you know, you pulled that thing out today. I really like that. I really like, yeah, I, have, yeah. I have no relationship with WorkSharp. Yeah, me um, neither. But man, I'm, I'm all about people knowing that that's a good piece yeah, of yeah. kit. It's very, very handy. Yeah. So yeah, man. Where can people follow along on uh, the adventures of Cliff Gray? Yeah. So the best way to do it is my uh, my Instagram. It's Cliff G R Y. YouTube. It's just Cliff Gray. So if you go in the search bar, type in Cliff Gray, and you can get on my website pursuitwithcliff.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter there. So any of those will will keep will keep you in touch with me. Does that cost people money? None of it. None of it uh, costs any money. That's pretty cool. So that's pretty cool, uh, folks. If, if you're getting good unbiased information from somebody with a bunch of outfitting and hunting experience, uh, that is worth, it's worth a lot of money. And if you can get it for free, you should take that opportunity. You should take that opportunity. Highly, highly recommend. Well, sir, we've got a, another client showing up this evening and, uh, I am sending you guys on uh, about the toughest hunt that I can come up with uh, first thing tomorrow morning. We're so going to have fun. We need to go do a little map recon and make a plan. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something. And they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. 
And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. Also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun and you know we're we're just getting started.